let's look at the word. We're here at the beginning of the first epistle of John, 1st John. And we're looking at the first four verses. So please give your your reverent attention to the words of God. 1st John chapter 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's uh, ask the Lord for, for his help as we, as we look at this text. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we come before you um, briefly now. Um, we know that if your Holy Spirit does not enlighten our eyes and open our hearts, uh, we understand nothing. And so we ask for your mercies. Uh, thank you for gathering us all here. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here at the beginning of First John. So Pastor Wong suggested that uh, we take a break from Genesis. And I thought that was a good idea. It's a pretty long book, as you may have noticed, uh, but we will certainly come back to Genesis later on. So if, you, if you're really enjoying it, don't worry. We'll come back to it. The first John is a lovely book. It's a letter written by the Apostle John, uh, the beloved apostle, some people call him. And it's written to a, a certain church. We don't know exactly which one. Um, and now as far as as we can tell, it wasn't a big crisis that prompted John to, to write to this church. So not like Paul, uh, for example, with uh, the Galatian church, which was in danger of losing the gospel, or the Corinthian church that Paul wrote to, uh, was just had all sorts of problems. So this wasn't that kind of a big crisis that made John write this letter. No, there wasn't a big crisis, but there was uncertainty uncertainty. Why? Because false teachers had been in their midst and recently tried to bring them into false doctrine. So the false teachers basically weren't successful. They weren't successful in convincing this church of false doctrine, but they did manage to pull away some people uh, from that church. And so the church was a little bit shaken, as you might be able to, to imagine, in that sort of situation. And some of them may have wondered to themselves, are we sure that what we believe about the Bible, about God, and about Jesus is really true? After all, those guys seem to have it right. They, have, they seem to have some good points about, about these things as well. Some of my good friends followed them. Are we sure that we have it right? What if we are wrong and we find out one day that we are actually 
not in the true church, and not saved. What if? Uncertainty. So that church had resisted some, some big spiritual attacks by God's grace, but those attacks have left them feeling a bit unsure and weak. And so the Apostle John, he knows the situation, so he writes to them. And to, he does this in order to clarify some things and to encourage them and to strengthen their assurance. So he wants them to have assurance. And you'll see that that's a theme in the letter. So that's the historical context of this letter, okay? So today we're looking at the first four verses, which John, under inspiration, designed as the introduction, the introductory section to the whole book. As you can see, this letter begins in an unusual way. How is it unusual? No greeting. No greeting. There's no, hi, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ. No, James, a servant of God. Uh, no grace and peace. And no clear indication of whom exactly is receiving this letter. So that's, that's unusual. Instead, we have this dramatic introduction. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have heard with our, uh, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, and so on. So John jumps straight in, doesn't he? And he does two things with this introduction. Two things. First, he establishes that what he is going to say next, throughout the rest of this letter, is true and authentic testimony. That's the first thing he does. True and authentic testimony. In other words, what he, he means to do here is to say, trust me, trust me. What I'm going to tell you next, you can trust me on. So that's the first thing that he does here. Second thing he does is he reveals his aim, his goal for writing this letter. What's his purpose? So that's the second thing. So th these are the two main points that we find in today's passage. You can call them John's authenticity and John's aim. So let's first consider John's authenticity. Trust me. Trust me. But why should the people trust him? Why should this church trust him? Especially over against the false teachers. What makes him more trustworthy? That's the question. Right? And now part of the answer has to do with what group of people he represents as he writes. So to be, pre to be precise, John is not just saying, trust me. He is also saying, trust us. So if you look at this introduction, you'll see that he says we all throughout this passage. Do you see that? We have heard, we have seen, we proclaim to you, have fellowship with us. So John is not just writing for himself. He also represents the authoritative teaching of all the apostles. And so that's part of the reason why people should trust him. But the main reason, the main reason that John himself highlights in this passage as to why people should trust him is that he has personally experienced God in the flesh. Let me say that again. Why should people trust him? Because he has personally experienced God in the flesh. So that's what he's trying to highlight here in this introduction. So verse 1, we see that he personally has 
heard and seen and even touched God in the person of Jesus Christ. I noticed, noticed that there's a, a progression that we see here with the, with the physical senses. So you start from, from hearing and then seeing and then touching. So you can hear things from far away. You can even hear things from behind you, right? But to see things, it has to be in front of you, especially if you want to see it clearly. Uh, and there can be nothing obstructing your vision. There can be nothing blocking your view if you want to see it. But then if you want to touch something, you need to be really close to it. You have to be right up, uh, right next to it. So now many have heard of Christ. In a sense, you could even say that Old Testament believers have heard of Christ. Um, others have seen him with their eyes. Fewer, fewer have seen him with their eyes. And only a select few have touched him, have touched Jesus. And as you know, from the story about uh, the so-called Last Supper, John, John is the only disciple who is recorded to have physically leaned on Jesus at the supper. And so that's part of why he, uh, he's the beloved apostle. He's really close to Jesus. And so this certainly makes John, wouldn't you say, this certainly makes John an expert witness on who Jesus was, who Jesus Christ really was. So the false teachers, they can speculate, they can claim, they can reason all sorts of things. But John was with him for three years, close to him. And he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that this man was God. This Jesus is the one who was from the beginning. In fact, this man is life itself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He raised people from the dead before John's very eyes. He himself came back to life after he was crucified. And so John says in verse 2, the life, he calls Jesus the life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it. To it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So what is John doing? John is establishing that his witness is authentic. It's true. He's an eyewitness. And so he establishes his authenticity of everything else that he says in this letter. That's the first thing he does. And then he moves on to talk about his aim, his goal writing this letter. What is John's goal for writing this letter? Well, we see first of all that the goal is fellowship. John writes this letter in order to invite them, invite that church into fellowship. And we see this in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John wants these people to come, come into close relationship, into communion with them. And so you can imagine, it's like when a group of children are playing at a playground, they're playing a game together at a playground, but then there's another kid who's sitting off to the side, all by himself, alone, lonely. But then one of 
one of the kids who are playing the game comes over to this, this lonely child and invites him over and says, come, play with us. Let's be friends. So this is essentially what John is doing. John, is, John invites them into fellowship with him and the other apostles of Christ. I told him that story beforehand earlier this morning, so he's, <laughs> he's understanding. Yeah. So why does John do this? He does this in part because there had been false teachers who wanted this church to join their fellowship. And so essentially, John is saying, no, don't join them, join us. Why? Why should you join us? Because we have fellowship with God himself. So as he says in verse 3, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the main reason behind John's invitation. John wants to bring people into fellowship with himself and with the true church. Yes, that's important. But even more than that, even more than that, he wants to bring them into fellowship with the triune God. That's his goal, a big and lofty goal. And he does this because it ultimately leads to joy. As we see in verse 4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now your Bibles probably have a note on this verse that tells you that it could be either our joy or your joy, depending on what manuscript you're looking at. Uh, I personally prefer the second one for several reasons. I think that John is saying, we are writing this, these things so that your joy may be complete. So John wants to increase and complete the joy of this church by bringing them into fellowship. But even if the correct reading is our joy, I believe that this has to include the hearers, not exclude them, if that makes sense. In other words, he would be saying, kita bukan kami. Make sense? So in either case, in either case, John wants this church to be happy. That's his goal. He wants them to be joyful. And that is why he writes. That is why he invites them into fellowship. So this introduction to the letter, you could say, covers the whole scope of, of history with Christ as the common thread that runs uh, through all of it. So Christ was there from the very beginning in verse 1, and then he was made manifest, verse 2. He was revealed in history. The Word became flesh. He was experienced. He was heard, seen, and touched. And then he was preached to others, proclaimed. This, this preaching gathers people into a fellowship with Christ and then leads them into fullness of joy. So in four verses, you get a brief history of salvation which just shows how, how intricately, how intentionally this introduction was designed. It's marvelous. So what does this short passage teach us about our God? A few things. First of all, it highlights that Jesus Christ is eternal life. Jesus Christ is eternal life. That's what John calls him in verse 2. When he says, the life was made manifest, he means that Jesus, the Son of God, was made manifest. When he talks about, in verse 2, the eternal life which was with the Father, you know that he's talking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, 
who was with God the Father in eternity. So John calls Jesus life. He calls Jesus life. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, does something similar in Colossians 3. When he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Did you catch that? Christ, who is your life. So, brothers and sisters, Christ is not only the way to life, which he is, but he is also life itself. It's not like Christ is only the bridge that takes you to Penang Island. As if his job is only to get you across to the other side. No, Christ is both Penang Bridge and Penang Island. When he gets you there to the other side, he is the other side. He's the essence of the other side. There is no such thing, dear friends, as eternal life apart from Christ. Because he is, he is eternal life. And I'm sure we know this already to some degree. But I think it's good to be reminded. Because in addition to thinking of Christ as, as our Savior, our prophet, priest, and king, our friend and our brother, our shepherd, to think of Christ as our life, it's to say that he's, he's everything. He's everything to us. It's to say, with Christ I am alive, and without Christ I am dead. He is my life. Brothers and sisters, that is who he is to us. And we, we don't even fully realize it. Now, so often we go about our business, don't we, without a, a single thought of him, even though he is our life. But one day we will understand. Jesus Christ is eternal life. Another truth that we find in this passage is that there is an eternal fellowship that exists in God. An eternal fellowship that exists in God, which we, we see in verse 3. So God is one God in three divine persons. You know this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons have been in perfectly joyful fellowship always. Always. That is an incredible thought. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, so Jesus speaks of how God the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. So that means that when there was no universe, when there were no mountains, no seas, no heaven and earth, when there were no angels, no animals, nothing, there was this divine, eternal fellowship. It is infinitely joyful, infinitely loving. The divine persons understand each other completely. They are so united that the Father is said to be in the Son and the Son in the Father. The three divi divine persons have one mind, one will, one life. So I'm sure that we've all had times of sweet fellowship and friendship in our own lives when we really felt like we were on the same page with certain people. But this, this is beyond 
our wildest dreams. We cannot possibly imagine what this is like. This fellowship, this mutual inter-Trinitarian love is so much part of who God is that John can say later in this letter, and you know the words, God is love. God is love. Some people think or speak of God as if he created the world because he needed creatures for him to love. That's just not true, dear friends. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have infinite capacity not only to love each other, but also to receive love from each other. We were not needed. We were not needed at all. And so, isn't it amazing, dear friends, that we are invited into this fellowship? We are invited. I mean, have you ever been really excited to get invited to a party? Introverts, use your imagination. Reverently speaking, this is the party. This is the party. This is the party of parties. And you are invited. You are invited. This is astounding because considering who we are, we would, we would think that we could only taint this perfect fellowship of three. We, we could only make it worse. We were, were tiny specks of dust in the universe. We barely know who God is. Rebellious, ungrateful, bitter, lustful, deceptive, jealous people. And God says to us, come. Come. Join this fellowship, this fellowship of love, this fellowship of life, this fellowship of light, this fellowship of joy. My friends, this is the gospel. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. So how then should we live in light of this reality? What does this mean practically for our lives? For one, this passage teaches us how to be good Christian witnesses. So as a church, we've been doing the, the 90 for 9 prayer initiative, uh, praying for lost souls. And I'm sure we've been thinking about what it means for us to be a faithful witness for the unbelievers around us, how we can reach out to them, how we can persuade them to embrace the gospel. It's a big challenge, and there's a lot that's involved. But this passage points out a very crucial element in all of this. When John says in verse 2, we have seen it and testified to it, that word testify means to bear witness. It's one of John's favorite terms whenever we see the verb testify or bear witness in the New Testament. More than half of the uses, uses in the New Testament are by the Apostle John. That's how, much he, that's how much he likes this term. And what's important for us to understand is that it's a legal term. It's a legal term. When we think of testimony, sometimes we might think of it as sharing your life story, right? And that's not necessarily a bad way 
to think about it. But the basic meaning of testimony is what you do in court on the witness stand. So let's say that a person is accused of murder. He's brought to trial and witnesses are brought in to bear testimony about whether or not this person is guilty. So the first witness comes up to the stand and he says, well, I heard from a friend who heard from his mom that this person probably has a gun and he's kind of weird. So he's probably the one who committed the murder. Good witness or bad witness? Bad witness. The second witness comes up to the stand. I know that this person committed the murder because it happened right in front of me before he ran away. Better, right? Now both witnesses claim the same thing. They both think that that guy committed the murder, but only one of them, only one of these witnesses had good reason to believe what he claimed. Okay, now let's put Jesus on trial. God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis said. Jesus is accused of blasphemy because he pretends to be God, people say. The Apostle John comes onto the witness stand. What does he say? I've heard him speak for three years and he only speaks truth. I've seen him walk on water. I've seen him heal the sick and cast out demons. I've touched his resurrected body after he was crucified. He is not pretending to be God. He is God. That's John's testimony. So, what makes for good witness in court? Personal experience. What makes for good Christian witness? Personal experience. Now, we cannot physically experience Jesus the way that John did, obviously. But we absolutely can experience the presence and the power and the sweetness of Jesus Christ. We'll be singing from Psalm 34 in a moment. And in that psalm, we are told to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what we have to do. Sometimes we might be tempted to think that being a good Christian witness means being clever or being good at debating people or having charisma in your personality. Or you might think that evangelism depends on, on strategies, on methods, on programs, but those things are not the main point. Just as your testimony in court would not mean much unless you personally witnessed what happened, you cannot be a good Christian witness if you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you have not recognized His voice in the scriptures, if you have not beheld Him with the eyes of your heart, if you have not clung to Him with the hands of prayer, but if you have personally heard and seen and held and tasted Him, you cannot but say to those around you, come magnify the Lord with me. Come join this marvelous fellowship. I've experienced it. It's good. Now some of you might be thinking, but I don't know if I have that kind of experience, or even if I did in the past. Now I don't feel very close to the Lord. What should I do? Well, first of all, if you're expecting something really dramatic, 
Uh, maybe don't. This doesn't have to be some extreme emotional high. But on the other hand, if you do feel far from God right now, what this passage tells us is that his invitation still stands. The door to the fellowship is open. And the book of James gives us a promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you ask the Lord to bring you nearer to himself through his word, through the sacraments, through the fellowship of believers, in your prayers, he will not deny you. You can be sure that is a request he is happy to answer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This passage also teaches us that we should welcome others into fellowship. So John sets a good example for us here. He invites people into fellowship with himself and into fellowship with God. And both of these aspects are important. Sometimes we might be tempted to do only one or the other. We might say to someone, I don't really want to deal with your problems. Go pray to God and he'll, he'll fix it for you. That's not good. All right. We send people off to fellowship with God, but we don't really want to fellowship with them. And that's what the Pharisees were like, actually. Jesus said they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've done this. We've given people cold, pious advice when our hearts really didn't care about them or empathize with them. I've done that. But we must invite people into fellowship with us. So we don't want to invite people into fellowship to, with God while rejecting us from fellowship with us. But on the other hand, we also don't want to invite them to fellowship only with us and not with God. Without God in the fellowship, it is no longer church. In fact, it's no longer a spiritual fellowship, but it's a social club. And again, I think this happens very easily, even among believers. I think we have to admit. So someone has said to me before, confessed, I think I am often tempted to love the church more than I love God. Think about that for a moment. Of course, if you love God, you love the church. But you know what this person means, right? The church is nice. The people are friendly, you feel cared for, you're part of a community, it's great. But we must not forget that the vertical aspect, the fellowship with God is primary and the horizontal relationships come second. We come together first and foremost because we want to seek God. And when we have that, then we have a fellowship that's worth inviting others into. And when it comes to welcoming people into fellowship, we might be thinking mainly of unbelievers. And that's important, especially as we are thinking about how to be evangelistic. But a training ground for doing that is here in the church. Remember that John is not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to Christians. And so you might wonder, why is he inviting them into fellowship? Aren't they already in fellowship with him? Inviting someone into fellowship does not have to mean bringing someone to Christ for the first time. It can also mean bringing someone into closer communion with Christ and with ourselves. 
And John is actually more concerned about this in his letter. So we, we will see um, later in this letter that he mentions over and over again about loving your brother. Loving your brother. Not even about loving the unbeliever. Because if we cannot reach out to those who are, who are inside, we are not going to be prepared to reach out to those who are outside. But if we learn how to invite each other into fellowship, learning to overcome our own fears and be patient with uncomfortable moments, learning to forgive each other's sins, learning to pray with and for each other, learning to be honest with each other, being willing to try to, to be friends with that member of the congregation that you don't really like, uh, doing that for the sake of Christ. If we learn to do that, we will be much better equipped to reach out to the lost world, be able to tell them sincerely, hey, it's really great in here. Come join us. So that's the introduction to John's first letter. And in the next few weeks, we'll be hearing some sermons that are meant to help us prepare for moving to the new building. And they deal especially with, with worship, with worship, so our fellowship with God. But in October, Lord willing, we'll get into the rest of 1 John. And we'll see more of what it means to be uh, in true fellowship with Christ and his church. So I've decided to name this series Back to Basics because John definitely takes us back to some very basic concepts in his letter, like light and darkness, righteousness and sin, uh, life and death, love and hate, truth and deception. And I think, I think it's good to be reminded of these things, even though they are very basic, um, especially at what seems to be a new beginning for this church, for this congregation. Because the basic things are often, they're the most important to get right and often the hardest to practice in our lives. And so as we, we get more into this book, may God help and guide us and draw us into closer fellowship with him and with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we beseech you to take this word and put it inside us. Help us to eat this word and help us to apply it in our lives. We thank you so much for, for speaking to us. And now that we have heard it, Lord, we ask you for help so that we are not guilty of, of treating your word lightly. Help us to, to keep thinking about it and indeed to seek fellowship with you and to seek fellowship with each other. Um, you know that, that we are weak in many ways. You know that we are sinful. You know the, the burdens of each person here. You know us perfectly, and we take comfort in that. And so we ask you, you who know us best, please help us. Give us strength where we need it. Give us wisdom where we need it. Please be with us throughout this week, in our workplaces, in our homes, um, to honor you and to, to live 
in the joy that you have available to us through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.